Where are we, Becky? I don't know. Somewhere westy. <laughs> Somewhere westy. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. It's um, been a while since I last did a podcast. I mean, to be fair, this is understandable as I've been away. Indeed, talking about that is kind of what this podcast is going to be about today. I did take my voice recorder with me on my adventures with the intention of, well, at least if not publishing a pod, at least recording one or bits of one. But yeah, that didn't happen in the end, as you can probably imagine. This is going to be quite an unusual podcast. It is just going to be me talking. There's no vox pops a third of the way through as there usually is. It's something I'm conscious of as potentially sounding either, you know, really boring or quite narcissistic. And it's one of the reasons I was reluctant to start a podcast in the first place. But unfortunately for you, this was the easiest way to tell this tale. So, a bit of background. Most of this I've already spoken about on a previous podcast. That's podcast number six of The Great Outdoors, if you can remember it. But although that was only four episodes ago, it was last December. And even then I'd forgotten about it, which tells you all you need to know about the way I do my podcasts. Yeah. I'd always had it in my head, an idea that I should do one of those long-distance walks. Uh, In all honesty, I'd got it in my mind that the most likely would have been the Camino de Santiago across northern Spain. However, I probably would have wanted to learn a bit of basic Spanish before tackling that one. And I'm going to talk about that at the very end of this pod. But then I figured, see, one of my prominent niches is I blog about the UK, my own country. I've always felt that people in general, and let's be honest, a fair few travel bloggers, travel all over the world to visit exciting and touristy sites, while similarly impressive and interesting places in their own country tend to get ignored. It's fabulous to see the world, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it's just as good to explore your home country, I think. And the standard long-distance journey, of course, in the UK is Land's End to John O'Groats, going from a point whose only notability is being the furthest southwesterly point in Great Britain, to a point that's neither the most northerly nor the most easterly point even in Scotland, never mind anywhere else. Plus, it's a journey that everyone does, so it's a bit old hat. What few people, if anyone, ever seemed to do was go from the most westerly point of Great Britain to the most easterly. Research showed this was Ardnamurchan in the west of Scotland and Ness Point in Lowestoft in Suffolk. Google Maps indicates this is around 530 miles. For a while, this was as far as it got. I'm one of those people who's always looking at fanciful ideas but often never goes through with them as other equally fanciful ideas take their place, many of which are far easier and far cheaper to enact. In many ways, I'm a bit of a fantasist. I take ideas and talk about them, but never go through with them, partly out of a fear of failure, but mainly because I realise they're too hard. However, as previously noted, I went to the Inspirational Yesterville, 
the festival that's committed to encouraging you to say yes to yourself more, and being there surrounded by such motivational people made me commit to doing my hike. When I came back to Nottinghamshire, I met up with my hiking friend Becky and talked about it with her. Turns out she too had been looking at the idea of a long-distance walk, and with a couple of tweaks, including the direction of the journey, by the end of that meeting we'd made not only a commitment to do it, but also a start date and a rough route. As I'm sure you're aware, these things always sound far better and more interesting when you're discussing them in a pub some seven months before you have to do anything. Over the course of the next few weeks, we made plans to do all manner of administrative things, including pitch to local tourist boards, newspapers, etc., let them know what we were doing. We tried to plot the route in much more intricate detail. Blah. But as you, and we, probably expected, we kind of lost touch with the plans as time went on, and more important and interesting things took our short-term time. The only things we did arrange were a couple of interviews on local radio in Nottingham and Norfolk, a few practice hikes so we could see how well we coped being around each other, and the services of a videographer, Joe, whose intention is to make a 45-minute documentary film about the hike. This involved him also teaching us some of the basic tenets of filmmaking, including style of shot, good contact, and the concept of telling a story. In many ways, the technical aspects aren't much different from podcasting, while the content isn't dissimilar from blogging, but obviously putting the two together in the same format makes it yeah, far more tricky and intricate. Needless to say, the more we hiked, the less we did. Now, as I say, on that first day we plotted a rough route. Our intention was to do as much walking as possible on footpaths, ideally long-distance named trails, but we planned to take any chance that we could to go off-road, partly because road walking is quite boring, but also because it's not really that comfortable both to physically walk on a hard surface and because we'd be consciously too near traffic. Apart from a couple of small sections, it seemed most of our journey could indeed be taken on paths, albeit they'd lengthen our journey in total by a couple of hundred miles. We estimated that rather than 530, it'd probably be closer to about 800. While this sounds like a big jump, it's because some of the paths took a roundabout route rather than going in straight lines, and we felt it was a good compromise. Now, it turns out we never really refined the route, so the rough route turned into our final plan. This had the other side of effect of, while we knew what paths to take for the most part, hand-waved some of them to sort out later, where later ended up meaning on the day we got there. It also meant that while we plotted how long each section of the journey would take, with estimated overnight stops, the end of the journey was so long ahead of time that we put in, you know, rough stops and figured we'd sort it out when we got there. This is why our part of the journey through Scotland was estimated to take 16 days, but in reality took nine. This doesn't mean we were underprepared. We always knew the first week or so would be a very quick learning curve, and our route took us past Nottingham, well, intentional, even if we had lived elsewhere, plotting the journey would certainly have taken us close by it anyway. We knew we realised if we'd forgotten something, or had things we didn't need, we could just go home and rearrange. We also had new equipment. Well, I had a whole new backpack that, because it's much larger than the hand luggage size backpacks I usually use, took some getting used to. Plus, I needed a new tent, as the one I have is just a bit large and unwieldy. I'd taken a practice hike um, with both of them a uh, month or so beforehand, which went about as well as you could imagine. I've got a video of that on my YouTube, and it, yeah, no. Uh, but I was hopeful that things would sort themselves out on the hike. Besides, obviously, I had Becky to help along if things went wrong. Although, it has to be said, even she was completely bamboozled by my tent when she first saw it, because it's very strangely built. We didn't manage to weigh our backpacks or ourselves before the start of the hike, but we estimated, yeah, we'd be carrying about 16 to 18 kilograms each. I think I'm carrying slightly more than she is. Anyway, 
So we headed down to Lowestoft on the Saturday, the 18th of May, and we had one final day of rest on the Sunday, making sure we had everything we needed, buying up easy-to-carry food at the supermarket, which for me ended up being mostly chocolate, nuts, and about three tonnes of packet couscous and tinned fish. All it needs is to boil some water, so it's easy cook, doesn't use much camping gas, and before we departed on the Monday morning. Ness Point, the furthest easterly point of Great Britain and the UK, well, it's not exactly the most impressive place in the world. It's easy to spot. There's a huge compass monument on the floor with directions to hundreds of places around the UK and Europe, including Ardnamurkin Point, which is 451 miles in a direct straight line, about the same as Bern in Switzerland. The surroundings, however, it's on a concrete promenade next to the rocky shoreline, about a mile and a half out of Lowestoft town centre, at the seaward side of an industrial estate, and directly behind a bird's eye frozen food factory. We felt that if we were ending the walk here, it may have had the feel of a bit of an anticlimax. That being said, at least it would have been an easy place to recover in and then get out of. It was a reasonably good, if quite overcast, day to start on. We had a small group of people to see us off, mostly staff from the small maritime museum we popped into the day before, who were all pretty excited about our adventure. And once Joe had finished all his artsy video shots, we headed off around 11am. I don't know if we were excited or not to finally be on the move. In all honesty, I at least didn't really think that far ahead to ever comprehend what we were doing. In my mind, we were just going to get up each morning and go for a walk, and then just do that for two months, pretty much every day. In addition, I didn't really see it as one long journey, but rather lots of shorter ones. So, for example, our first path was the Norfolk Coast Path, which would take about six days to complete. So at the start, I wasn't thinking further than that, really. Every time we finished a named path, my mind would then move simply on to the next one, or the next major change in direction. It would never really go to the end. I'd never really think about the end of the route at Ardnamurkin. We did get to the end, though, obviously. Uh, We successfully ran out of land 57 days after leaving. Here are some of the fun stats, some courtesy of Becky's fancy watch thing that kept a track on stuff. We walked around 952 miles in total. We did wonder if we'd break a thousand, and to be fair, had we calculated we'd finish on something around 980, we would have, you know, maybe taken a couple of longer routes, but we felt 48 miles was just too much to fudge. And if you're wondering why it's 952 miles rather than our estimated 800, it's because footpaths do not go in straight lines. So when you're plotting them on a map, you can't plot every single curve that those footpaths take. And although it doesn't, you know, take up much more space, so each curve isn't much longer than a straight line, obviously when you're doing something like the Pennine Way that's 260 miles, it all adds up. Our total altitude gain was in the region of 22,000 metres, or around two and a half Everests. The highest point we reached, as the weather was too grim to tackle Ben Nevis, which was a bit of a shame, was Cross Fell at 893 metres and a pretty easy climb in all honesty. The lowest point we reached was a couple of metres below sea level in the Fens, pretty much all of the Fens. One of the interesting points about the early part of our journey is that our first day on the Pennine Way saw us climb higher than on our first two weeks combined. So the first day on the Pennine Way we went up about 900 metres, and the first two weeks were 400, 450 metres each. Eastern England is quite flat, yes. In that 57 days, we, well, Becky, keep listening to find out why I had a couple of extra ones, had five rest days at Hunstanton, Nottingham, Edale, Peebles and Glasgow. This means we walked an average of about 18.3 miles on every day that we walked. When we were planning the hike, we'd sell ourselves the target of 15 miles a day. Of those 57 days, ignoring the two nights we spent in our respective homes as we passed through Nottinghamshire, 
Me and Becky overnighted in different locations six times, three of which were a result of injury, which I'll come on to later. The other three were when, for reasons of self-care, I felt I needed a small bit of luxury, so I stayed in a pub-stroke B&B while Becky camped. We wild-camped together 15 times. Interestingly, six of them were on the last seven nights. These 15 nights included by a marsh, on the side of a hill, in the woods, by the side of a loch, and on a beach. Our plan was to wild camp more, but the weather on the Pennine Way just wasn't conducive to it when we started, and then we kind of got into a rhythm of walking with people and going from campsite to campsite. Other places we stayed included the garden of a dementia care home, a random empty scout camp, and a not-yet-open Airbnb, while several kind people put us up in their houses. We also stayed the night twice in Bothies, the traditional Scottish mountain refuge hut type places. Once was at the very end of the Pennine Way, and the other time was on the West Highland Way. One of Becky's ideas in the planning stage was that we should raise money for charity while doing it, and after a quick discussion, we settled on Mind, the mental health charity, for mostly personal and blindingly obvious reasons. In total, between the two of us, and including money donated en route from people we met, we raised about £1,600. I had to talk a bit about the walk itself, I guess. Well, the first week was a great introduction. It wasn't particularly onerous, as you can imagine. The train was in the most part quite comfortable, though we may have got a bit bored of sand after a while. And the people were incredibly friendly. We went along the Norfolk coast path, as I've mentioned, and it was a pretty sunny and warm week, so we kept bumping into both locals and tourists who were out enjoying the beaches and the coastal towns, which are all quite pretty. The second section from Kingsland to Nottingham was a bit more lonely, as we were largely on footpaths through the countryside, some distance from anywhere touristy, and whose very provision itself was subject to question. The best example of this being the Neen Way. Now, see, this is a footpath. It's on the map and it stretches from the coast just north of the village of Sutton Bridge, on the edge of the Wash, all the way to Northampton. However, people don't walk on maps, they walk on the ground. And I posit that the Neen Way does not exist. The first few miles saw us having to choose between walking either along a road with no pavement or through a patch of long, knee-height grass by the side of a river, which at this point has been canaled and thus perfectly straight. This was the part of the walk I was least looking forward to, because it's so boring, but we did much of it on the 30-mile day, so we stormed through it without too much stress. Other than the fact that the path did not exist! There were some signposts suggesting it was on the road, but these signs were so faded and unmaintained that it made us wonder if even the local council had forgotten its existence. Beyond the wonderfully named village of Foulanka, no kidding, the path turned into a flood defence dyke pretty much all the way to Whittlesea, the ease of walking on which depended on whether the sheep had been allowed to graze on it yet. Peterborough was quite pleasant and easy, though the clearer path caused Becky to earn more blisters. But past Wandsford, the path deteriorated into a collection of waist-high nettles, dispatched only with the walking pole of doom. Or me, wielding one of Becky's walking poles, like some kind of sword. After wandering through farmland and past Rutland Water, one of the largest artificial lakes in Europe, fact fans, nearly 11 square kilometres, and as old as I am, we reached home. It did feel a little weird to wander up to Nottingham Railway Station after two weeks on the road, even if we knew it was only a brief respite. Uh, to be honest, we didn't feel the journey had really started until probably a week later when we um, started on the Pennine Way. One of Becky's non-negotiables was that we hike up the entire length of the Pennine Way. This is one of the UK's longest named trails, and it's the one that's generally regarded as the toughest and most prestigious. We started in sunshine on the Monday morning, but we already knew it was going to rain, and the rain came down just after our lunch up at Snake Pass, named of all things after a pub, and stopped. Well, 
The Wednesday afternoon was dry, as was the Friday. But let's say the rain stopped on the Sunday. So that's basically a whole week of rain. And it wasn't just rain. It was torrential rain. Wind. And had we started with the Pennine Way, I think it would have been tougher. But because we'd already been walking for three weeks by this point, we'd got into a rhythm. We were used to the bags and it didn't feel as onerous as it does for most people. I don't think there was anywhere on the path that we ever felt like we couldn't finish it. But the fact that it was incessant rain and miserable and windy, that was probably the most difficult thing that I found. Uh, the upshot of this was quite a bit of the trail was over quite boggy ground. And at times the path itself disappeared into deep muddy puddles. This hit me hard on a day late on in the journey in Northumberland, where I completely lost the path in a hillside of heather and marsh at least three times. Saw me clamber up to the top of a hill, threw my hiking poles down in frustration and tears. So it meant slow going at times, and at one point, Becky did nearly disappear into a particularly deep puddle. There is picture evidence of this. That was on the second to last day, actually. It was on the long open stretch over the Cheviots. 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 No one's ever been able to work out how to pronounce that. Anyway, this was our 15th day on the Pennine Way, so it was a little bit galling to be passed by people who'd run the entire trail. 250-odd miles in less than four days. We finished just as the annual spine race did. This is one of those ultra-marathons that most people go, eh, well, why would you do that to yourself? The winner, Sabrina Vergi, who was pretty chatty when she passed us and looked like she was just out for a casual park run, finished in 81 hours and 19 minutes and had slept for about three and a half of them. People feel the need to challenge themselves in different ways, and it's really good to appreciate that. Still wouldn't do it, mind. Unlike any of the other sections we hiked, the nature of the Pennine Way, which is a long-defined route with obvious stopping points, and there's so many guidebooks written about it, was such that we ended up hiking in parallel with quite a few other people, including a group of four retired but incredibly fit Americans. But in the end, we did the second half of the trail, more or less constantly, with two solo hikers, both called Simon, Simon 1 and Simon 2. We'd hiked with people before, but usually only for a couple of hours. To be around other people for so long was quite a change, and one I didn't really necessarily always click with, being the raving introvert that I am. But aside from one or two minor irks that need not be mentioned here, it ended up not being as bad as I'd feared. They understood if I seemed to need time on my own, either far ahead or far behind. And we kept in touch remotely to tell each other of conditions underfoot, or in one case overhead, a hill with very low-hanging trees. It's hard to judge where your backpack is sometimes. Once we hit Scotland, the weather cleared up, and with the hardest bits behind us, we really started to motor. The trails became easier, the scenery clearer, and the last couple of weeks were quite an enjoyable sorter through roading hills, along old cattle droving roads, and much more wild camping. Essentially, this was how we'd envisaged the hike to be all the way through. It was glorious, and in a way it was rather sad it had to end. The last day of our hike was around 22 miles, along a path that theoretically existed through remote hills on the northern side of the Merkinham Peninsula in the midwest of Scotland. It was clear sunny and dry and the views from the cliffs over the water to some of the inner Hebrides were divine. Interestingly after having spent seven days on the road with our backpacks including over some very rough and undulating terrain the West Highland Way was a doddle and whisper it quietly a little underwhelming. There was a point for example coming out of Kinloch Leven on the last day up a really steep hill where we passed quite a few people struggling to climb, even ones just with day packs. And there's us, full backpacks, almost sprinting up as if it were a park run. In a way, reaching the end of the walk was actually an anticlimax. It's a lighthouse about three miles from the nearest village. We got there about 9.20pm. There's no welcoming party, no big celebrations, just the two of us. And a brief chat with one of the people that worked there. And it must be said, a small bottle of port. 
but maybe that was appropriate. It was our journey after all, and it was nice just to chill. One of my main takeaways from the hike is just how much of my own country I went to, some of it being parts I didn't really know about. In my eyes, the best day of the hike was in the second half of the Pennine Way. It was a pretty long day, about 21 miles. We went from village of Middleton in Teesdale to the village of Dufton. But we walked through some incredibly stunning scenery that I didn't even know existed, including three waterfalls, Low Force, High Force and Cauldron Snout, the latter requiring scrambling up rocks by the side of it in a move that probably a couple of years ago I'd have had as a hard limit. And finishing with a stunning vista at a place called High Cup Nick, which involved looking down a rounded valley out over towards the Lake District. It helped that it was a pretty sunny day, but even so, this is all in the North Pennines area of outstanding natural beauty, and you can't help but feel if it were anywhere else in the country, it'd be filled with tourists. Yet we had it pretty much all to ourselves, because no one really knows it exists. I'd argue that many people don't explore their own country enough. They'll go flying around the world to see something interesting, but don't necessarily realise something equally as worthy lies on their own doorstep. Maybe that's something people like me can help to change. For those of you wondering, no, I did not do the hike barefoot. I mean, I did where I could, or at least where I felt comfortable doing so. But oh my god, this country is fond of gravel paths. I mean, I could have done it, but it would have taken maybe three or four times longer, and I would have been whinging a lot, and it would have hurt, also a lot. Mostly, I was in sandals, except for a bit of the Pennine Way, where I had walking shoes, but we'll come on to why later. With regards to the rest of the equipment, I had a backpack that, as I say, it weighed somewhere between about 17 and probably 20 at some point, kilograms depending on how much food i was carrying really the original idea had been to wild camp and cook for ourselves every night but practicalities and weather meant that this didn't necessarily happen as often as we'd aimed that said we didn't eat out that often we both carried our own camping stoves gas canisters and cooking mugs so if we were in a town we usually hit the supermarket rather than the restaurants although some of my friends did claim we were on britain's longest pub crawl as we always seemed to be in the pub this was more for practical reasons though as it provided a place to rest charge phones and work out what to do next the beer was incidental, honest, though at one point it was probably providing about 25% of my entire calorie intake. Regarding food, we carried stuff that was both light and easy to cook, but which also provided Becky. As I say, I tended to stick to couscous and tinned fish. Becky had a lot of those packets of pasta, the um, pasta and sauce things. We also had nuts, chocolate and an awful lot of beef jerky type stuff, plus the occasional packet of wine gums or boiled sweets, which assisted us and sustained us during the day when we needed a snack. As an aside, I can honestly say that having couscous for the best part of two months makes you slightly disinclined to ever have it again. We tended to just drink water en route. We both had uh, refillable bottles, one with a filter, so we could fill up at streams and the like, which made things a lot easier in the later part of the journey, when we were much more in the wilderness. Plus, whenever we stayed at campsites or went to the pub, we tended to fill up our bottles there, to be honest. We each had our own tents, our own sleeping bags. I realised on the Pennine Way that my sleeping bag was an unusual colour. Most people seemed to have standard red, black, blue, that sort of colour. Mine looked not a little like a lemon and lime boiled sweet. And a roll mat. Apart from that and the clothes, we didn't pack a great deal. And we didn't really even pack many clothes. Uh, we only had a couple of changes of clothing. When you're hiking 150 miles, you get used to not really caring what you smell like, as whatever you wear is going to get dirty and smelly anyway. Heaven help anyone in the pub next to us when we finished a day hike. Our view was that as long as we had dry clothing for every part of our body, it'd be enough. Between us, we had three phones and at least two portable power banks, and we both had on our phones the Ordnance Survey app. So we always knew where we were and had backup in case one of the phones, or one of us, stopped working for some reason. This meant that if necessary, we could probably manage a week completely isolated from anything, including each other, before we'd start having to have problems. 
Fortunately, this is the UK and it's hard to go a week without finding at least a farm, if not a pub. Now, one of my fears beforehand had been that I'd get 100 metres down the road on day one and sprain an ankle or something. Needless to say, this didn't happen. In fact, in the course of the hike, there were far fewer accidents and injuries than you might have expected. I mean, Becky had several blisters before we even started, but that's, you know, by the by, that's all Becky has. And one of the things she'd managed to do when we passed by Nottinghamshire was change her shoes to a wider pair she'd been waiting on, but had arrived too late. Once she had those, it was fine. In fact, the only injuries obtained were by myself. They were all quite minor, and all of them could be put down to a word I only discovered on the hike, suggested to me by one of Becky's friends we hiked with in Cumbria when I was describing some of my inabilities. The word is dyspraxic, and when I later read out the symptoms of it to Becky, she laughed and nodded in agreement by the time I'd reached the third one. Essentially, dyspraxia is... Well, you know, dyslexic means someone whose mind can't handle or visualise letters very well, and dyscalcula means that you have the same problem with numbers. Well, dyspraxia is the same kind of condition except with spatial representation. People with dyspraxia have trouble with timing, balance, spatial awareness and clumsiness, amongst other things. Yeah, I thought that too. The first instance occurred as early as day three. While camping in the grounds of the dementia care home on the Norfolk coast, my right thumb got just too close to the just-been-used element of my camping stove. The resulting blister lasted a week. My left thumb was the victim of inevitability in an Airbnb in the Scottish borders. We were cooking dinner and the knives were new and still sheathed in rubber protection. I took one out and said, ooh, these look sharp, I don't use it, because you know I'll cut myself. Becky replied with the possibly naive, oh, don't be silly, you won't cut yourself, you'll be fine. Of course, you can guess what happened two onions later. It stopped bleeding the next day. The main injury sustained, though, was my own fault, because I'm also quite impatient. In the village of Little Eaton, just north of Derby, I'd stopped to take photographs of the dead railway station, while Becky and the other two people who'd joined us for that leg walked on to find a place for lunch. Despite knowing that I walked quicker than them, and also despite knowing that they were only going as far as the village green a couple of hundred metres up the road, I decided it would be a great idea to jog after them to catch up. About five steps later, I discovered why running barefoot with a heavy backpack down a pavement when you have dyspraxia was a really bad idea. Somewhere in Long Eaton is the remains of a toenail that was ripped right off when it scraped badly along the top of the pavement. It didn't hurt, by the way, apart from the initial feeling of graze, but it looked incredibly bad. It also didn't stop bleeding for about three days. I actually took a couple of days off at this point to go home and rest my foot. I figured that walking on wouldn't make it heal particularly quickly. Fortunately, it happened quite close to home. I took the decision after walking on a bit further to ambigate and feeling quite mentally uncomfortable about it. One of Becky's friends who was walking that part of the day with us took me to my house on his way back home. I found out later that Becky had had strong thoughts that I wouldn't come back to the hike at all, but I wasn't out of action for long. It happened on the Thursday and I met back up with her on the rest day and on the Sunday when she was at Edale. One of the amusing side effects of this injury was a recommendation that I keep the toe dry to stop it becoming infected and to make it heal quicker. I took some old, well-worn hiking shoes from home. On Monday, we started hiking up the Pennine Way. As I said, it started raining at lunchtime that day and stopped later that week. As noted earlier, parts of the trail were incredibly boggy. My shoes leaked. Despite my best efforts, Atto's bandaging got sodden within about 10 minutes of starting the walk every day. As an aside, even after my toe had healed to the point where I could wear sandals or even hike barefoot through the bogs further up the Pennine Way, I tended to keep the shoes around just in case, though by this time they were really past their best. I finally left them at the pub in Kirkyatham at the northern end of the Pennine Way, in a trough lined with other boots, as a kind of apt farewell. With regards to illness, this only happened once. 
We took a rest today in the pretty and slightly hippie Scottish borders town of Peebles because Becky was feeling strangely ill the day before. She'd managed to make it to the campsite in Peebles after a bit of a rest in the woods, but when faced with the prospect of walking on the next morning, we figured when she woke up only five minutes before we were supposed to leave that we'd probably better stay put. She was fine the next day now, so who knows what it was. Probably she'd eaten something dodgy the day before. One of the most frequent questions we were asked, both nearing the end and after we'd finished, was, what next? I'd kind of decided, once we got to Ardnamurkin, that because the ferry port of Oban was relatively easy to get to, I should take a trip into the Outer Hebrides. I'd never been, and they were close. I'd never get such an easy opportunity again. Becky was less clear. In the end, she decided to join some friends of hers who were climbing some of the Scottish mountains, so she went back to Fort William before heading home over a week before I did. That's only a short-term answer, of course. In the long term, I genuinely don't know. I still don't. One of the things the hike allowed me to do was to think, think about who I am, what I liked, what I enjoyed, why I travelled. This hike, and my add-on adventure into the Outer Hebrides, made me come to a number of conclusions. The first is that I like travelling. By this, obviously I like travelling. That's the most stupid thing I've said. But let me explain. What I mean is that I enjoy the act of travel in and of itself, rather than using it as a means to an end. I think I already knew this to an extent, but walking for 57 days across the country I found quite enjoyable as a journey. I realised I wasn't doing it because I wanted to get to Ardnamurkin, but more that I was doing it for its own sake, and Ardnamurkin merely acted as a change of direction. While I'm not sure I'd do another month-long hike in the near future, it did bring home my enjoyment of being on a journey, of going through places and seeing them fleetingly, rather than going to places and seeing them intensively. I also realised I feel more comfortable travelling without a deadline, without a need to be in any given place on a certain day. I've realised that even if that certain day is two or three weeks in the future, it still feels restrictive. Related to this, I've realised I find joy in exploring scenery, especially rolling hillsides and sea views. I like being in towns and cities, but only for as long as it's useful, and then I have to move on. Again, this is something I kind of knew already, especially given my short attention span. I've always found it hard to be in one place for more than a few days, but it's nice to have it confirmed. And of course, always being on the move means that I am, by definition, never in the same place for more than as long as it takes to move on. Did someone say ADHD? Although we both like scenery, one of the things Becky and I disagreed on while on the trek was the type of landscape we preferred to walk through. She's very much a mountain creature, whilst I like being in the foothills, but not necessarily up them. She also likes terrain that breaks up the monotony of the hike, while I prefer to be able to get into a rhythm and keep moving. There was a day on the West Highland Way that was all very short up, very short down, undulating, almost scrambling over rock sections. It meant I felt I had to concentrate too hard and not enjoy the walk. Um, dyspraxia. I've got no balance, especially going downhill. Seriously, why can't going down slopes be as easy and enjoyable as going down on people? Whereas Becky felt that her um, her favourite section, actually, because it was constantly varying, and thus it kept her interest up. Conversely, I loved the terrain and scenery of the cross-borders Drover's Road, which was rolling hills, gradual slopes, the whole country panning out around you, but without having to go up or down to see it, and fairly comfortable, grassy, or at least defined pathways. My later adventures into the Outer Hebrides also showed me how much I appreciate islands. I'm not, of course, a water creature, as you know, but I grew up by the seaside, and I guess that kind of landscape has stayed with me. Islands means you have everything you want, small towns, hillsides, sea views, in a small enough space to explore for enough time until you get bored. Move on to the next island, and there's a lot of islands in the Outer Hebrides. And they all have a different personality, but this isn't an Outer Hebrides podcast, and I'll come on to that in another podcast or blog. Also, my third point 
is that I appreciate travelling with people, but only on my terms. See, most of my life I've been a solo traveller by choice, and I've very rarely travelled with people for longer than I've had to for the purposes of a side quest. But perhaps surprisingly, I enjoyed having someone with me I could bounce off, but also talk to when I was feeling a bit low, and equally be a sounding board when they were feeling low. One of the things we made sure to reinforce to each other before we started was that though we were hiking across Britain at the same time, going the same way, there was no pressure or expectation on us to stay together for the whole time. We were, in essence, two individuals hiking solo who just happened to be doing the same thing at the same time. And that worked really well. So while quite often we walked together and camped up next to each other, equally sometimes we were up to an hour and a half away from each other or spent the night several miles apart. The other aspect to this really came to the fore on the Pennine Way. As I mentioned earlier, uh, after a few days hiking, we naturally kind of fell into sync with other hikers. Sometimes this was really good to break the monotony, to share stories and ideas with people. At other times, however, and especially because Becky is quite an extrovert, I kind of felt a bit left out almost because she'd be walking with her couple of her friends who join us for a section or people that she'd really got to know walking with us for a while. And she'd revel in that crowd despite being a solo traveller herself. Well, I'll feel... I'd feel almost overwhelmed by the numbers of people, so I'd hang back and walk on my own a bit because I couldn't cope with the peopling. And obviously, as I say, Becky knew exactly what I was doing and how I felt, and she let me be, and that's brilliant. And yet, we had a couple of discussions about whether we could have done the journey on our own. Offhandedly, we concluded I would have been much quicker, but it would have hurt more physically. But in truth, I'm not sure it would have been as enjoyable. This, plus the Philippine trip I talked about in my last podcast, meant I've kind of realised that with the right person under the right conditions, I can be comfortable travelling with other people. Indeed, in some places, I kind of enjoy it. That's quite a fundamental revelation. One of the things I've had a real problem handling on my return, though, has been a sense of, I don't know how you'd describe it, post-trip blues, maybe, similar to reverse culture shock, which I covered in another earlier podcast, but taking a slightly different form. It's like, well, I've done this thing that's been taking up much of my runtime for several months. Now that it's finished, what do I do now? I knew it was going to happen, which is another reason I chose to take a trip to the Outer Hebrides, kind of delaying the inevitable for as long as possible, but also to give me a bit of time to process everything and step back slowly into a mundane life. I'd had a number of plans in my head for things to do for the remainder of the year. The main one, of course, was to go to Bolivia or somewhere and learn Spanish on site, then backpack around Latin America until my money ran out, basically. But the issue I have now, and I may be second-guessing myself, overthinking a little bit too much here, is that in a general sense, I realise that very often I go to places because they sound good and that I might as well, rather than actively wanting to see them. In addition, I'm guilty of going to places and not seeing them properly because I, I find something else to distract me, or because I realise well, it's my trip, I can do what I want, and if that means doing nothing, I'm OK with that. This is a feeling that's been hanging over me for a year, since I went to Sri Lanka, actually, where I had all these ideas of things to do, but basically I spent 12 days doing nothing but eating the food. I don't have a problem with this, but it seems weird to go all the way to Sri Lanka to eat Sri Lankan food, when I could have just done that in London. Part of me thinks it therefore was a bit of a waste to visit. I mean, I know it wasn't, and I know I got a lot out of it, but even so, I didn't do or see anywhere near as much as I could have done. In a way, I have kind of the same fear about Latin America. Am I only doing this because it sounds like a good idea? There's another factor. Am I realistically ever going to use Spanish again after that trip? The only places that really speak it are Spain and Latin America. The latter's a long way to go for regular trips and I'm not sure I'd ever go to the former enough to make it worthwhile on the grounds that I've been once in my life and that was in the year 2000. But 
And then you see, I could argue the same about every other travel plan I could concoct, every other place I'd visit, every other potential language I could learn. Like Russian, I've always been interested in both the language and the region, but again, realistically, how useful would it be to go there and learn? Does it matter? And then there's other places I've got an inkling to visit because of my passion for lesser-known destinations. Places like Kiribati, Niue, Somaliland. Note, two of them are islands. Would I go to them because I'm genuinely interested or am I contemplating them purely because they're places that sound interesting and they fit my niche, so I feel I ought to? Again, though, does it matter? And if, regarding my points earlier, I like to travel from place to place to place to place to place to place and enjoy the scenery, does it even matter where I do this, except to say I'd only do it in a region I fancied going to in the first place? Recently, I've also rediscovered interrailing. And again, that's another option. That that mits with that niche quite well because it's going from place to place to place to place the travel is more important and i'd spend not that much time in each individual town obviously europe is hideously expensive but it's a possibility and it, it meets my criteria also one of my ambitions is to visit every capital city in europe and has been for about 25 years but again is that something i'm only contemplating doing because i can rather than because it's the right thing for me to do i don't know i'm still thinking about that one Sorry, this all sounds like a narcissistic, highly privileged, incoherent existential crisis rant. I do those rather well. Another thing it's been hard to avoid is the feeling of comparison. The people who hiked with us on the Pennine Way section, for instance, when we were all asked as a group what we were doing, they tended to say, we're only, or we're just, doing the Pennine Way, in a reference to our much longer trek, as if the Pennine Way itself was nothing special. Yet walking across the country doesn't feel like much compared to, say, the Spine Rillers, as that takes a much greater effort and level of skill. In addition, as I record this, one of my Instagram friends is walking from London to Rome, which, although only about a 100 or so miles more than we did, feels like a much bigger achievement. Then you have people like Anna McNuff, who's doing 100 marathons, barefoot. I feel like such a failure and imposter in her random trip across the country. And that's not to even start considering the people who've, like, for example, swam the coastline of Britain or cycled around the world. My fear, which I'm trying to keep in check, is the feeling that I need to go one better, to do something bigger, whereas what I may need to do for my mental health, if nothing else, is to do something completely different entirely. Watch this space, I guess. Anyway, I think that's all the ranting for this episode. Normal service will resume next time with a podcast all about international borders. Probably. Until then, have fun, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.